Well, good morning, brethren, and I hope that I'm coming through clearly. Um, the sound should be good, and I'm hoping now that the video is much better. I'm, I'm coming iPhone camera rather than the camera on the computer, and I hope that that is working. I have a feeling it's not going to work, so I think I'm going to have to switch here. Okay, I think I think we're good. So if you can just uh, confirm for me that I am coming through clearly, uh, both the audio and the visual, I'll assume that that's the case. Um, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the study for today. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before our study to thank you, to praise you, and to ask you, Lord, that you will bless us as we come before you during this Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, help us, Father, to truly, fully, thoroughly rejoice before you. Uh, in the knowledge of what you have brought us into, uh, what the future holds for us, Father, and for the whole world. We praise you, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. So, brethren, I'm just going to check the comments here quickly, just to see that I am. Oh, good. Thank you so much, uh, Sister Christy. Says, looks good, sounds great, wonderful. And Scooter Rose, all is good. Beautiful. Thanks so much. That is great. That uh, worked that out. Um, I know that the grainy image uh, wasn't so great but uh, we've managed to work around that. So uh, let's get into the passage for today, which is um, we're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter two. And again, just uh, as by way of reminder, um, we're here commanded as, as ancient Israel was to rejoice before the Lord. And, and the logic that I'm having here in studying Ephesians is that uh, God says to the ancient Israelites, and let me just uh, open up the scripture a bit more. Uh, sorry. There we go. Yes. Uh, so God says to the ancient Israelites that seven days they're to keep a solemn feast unto the Lord, their God, our God, in the place which the Lord shall choose. Why? Because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your increase. This is physical increase and in all the works of your hands. So, so these, this was an agricultural uh, society and, and they had to work very, very hard. And God is saying, look, I'm going to bless you uh, in your increase and in the works of your hands. And therefore, you shall surely rejoice. And the argument that we're making is if the ancient Israelites were to surely rejoice because of the physical blessings that they received at the works of their hands, how much more shall we rejoice because of all the spiritual blessings that we are receiving, not of the works of our hands, but at the works of God's hands. We, we, we have done nothing to, to deserve these spiritual blessings. And yet God is uh, lavishly uh, uh, bestowing them upon us without holding anything back. And it's nothing to do with us. It's not our work that's doing this. So let's um, continue then with that frame in mind. We're studying this to help us rejoice during these uh, feast days. And here we are now halfway through the feast. Can you believe how fast it is going? Now, we don't want to abandon what we have studied in chapter one. Uh, Ephesians one, or the book of Ephesians, we cannot properly understand it if we do not stick with the foundation that the apostle has laid in chapter one. So he lays a foundation in chapter one, and then he expands on that foundation through the rest of the book or through the rest of the letter. So as we're reading the rest of the letter, we want to go back to chapter one to see what are the concepts that he's elaborating on and, and bringing forward 
into these subsequent chapters. So we're going to go into chapter two, but let's just pick up some key concepts from chapter one to bring forward uh, into chapter two as we seek to understand what the apostle is saying in chapter two. So he says here, uh, just again, it's hard to break up chapter one because it's such a beautiful flowing letter and there's, there's beautiful logic there, but we did that uh, yesterday. So let's just pick out a couple of verses here as we go into chapter two. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in, heaven, in the heavenly in Christ. So this is a concept he's going to expand upon. So, so there's, all, there's all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly, and he's blessed us with them. He hasn't held anything back. And then verse five, and then we, we saw this con concept or notion of predestination. And we said that, you know, the, the rabbi is not making up some new Greek philosophy here. He's tapping into his understanding of Torah and that there, there, from, from the foundation in the Torah, we could see that there was clearly a plan that God had that he would have a people that he would use for the redemption of all mankind. And so this concept of predestination is going to come forward, this election, this choosing uh, to become adoption, ad adopted as children. And this is according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse seven, that we have redemption through his blood. So this is again, a notion that's gonna come forward. And this forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So uh, the, the letter opens with him uh, bestowing upon God's people grace and peace, grace and peace. And so this notion of God's grace, the glory of his grace, and that, that when, I, when everything is said and done, uh, he will be praised for the glory of his grace. So this concept of his grace is going to come forward. And then in verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So this is the feast of ingathering. And we are actually picturing this time of God gathering, ultimately gathering together everything in one in Christ. So this is also going to come forward, beginning with God making one out of the Gentiles and the Jews. But ultimately, this is leading to everything coming under Christ. And then in verse 18, his prayer that the eyes of their and our understanding would be enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of his calling. So there's, there's a hope that he has with this calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So there's this phenomenal riches of, of, of the glory of this inheritance in the saints. And, and we have to understand this. And this concept is going to come forward in chapter two. And finally, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? This is going to come forward in a very mighty way in the next chapter, that there is this incredible, incredible, exceedingly great power that God has, that he is exercising toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, this same power which he wrought in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power. So this, we have to 2020 hold on to this as we go into the next chapter. So there's this incredible power that God has, and he exercised this incredible power to, to raise Christ from the dead 
And in raising Christ from the dead, he set him at his right hand in the heavenly far above, like not, not a little bit above, way above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. When the apostle uses this concept or the, this phrasing of principalities and powers, he's not only referring to human powers and human dominions, very much he's referring to the spiritual realm. And, 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 and remember, uh, these Ephesians come from this very dark place. This, is, this was a very dark city with demonic witchcraft. But to show how uh, the Apostle Paul is very sensitive to the demonic world and how when he refers to principalities and powers, he's referring not just to human powers, but to these demonic powers. In Colossians 1 verse 16, he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for, for him. So, so Christ is far above any of these principalities and powers. In chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, he says, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So we can't fear any principality and power. And in verse 15, Colossians 2, he says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So these principalities and powers, the Apostle Paul, as he went into Ephesus and made these new converts, he is very sensitive to the real power of, of this demonic realm, of this invisible realm. He's very sensitive to it, but he has also overcome it through Christ. And he uh, was known to this demonic world that they, they said, you know, uh, Jesus we know, and we know Paul. But to the sons of Sceva, playing around with exorcism in Ephesus, like, who are you? We don't know. You don't cause us any trouble at all. You don't contradict us at all. You're, you're slaves to us. You're not on our radar. You know, as we flew into Ephesus, none of our, none of our uh, colleagues said to us, watch out for the sons of Sceva. They said to us, Paul is going to give you a hard time. You're going to lose converts because of Paul's preaching and how he removes the deception. So Jesus we know, Paul we know, we don't know you sons of Sceva. So Paul had access to this mighty power. These brethren are coming out of this darkness. He wants them to access this power and not to be afraid of these principalities and powers. Now, in Acts 19, we read this uh, on the first day when we did the introduction to Ephesus or to Ephesians, the letter to Ephesus. I just want to remind you again, let's read a little bit more carefully here in Acts 19 and verse 18. And many that believed, so Paul was preaching mightily and removing the deception, removing the stronghold of these demonic forces. And many that accepted this preaching and believed, they came and they confessed and showed their deeds. So they were into some deep, deep demonic witchcraft. And Paul's preaching reached them and they repented and they confessed and they showed what they were doing. They showed the witchcraft that they were into. And many of them also, which used curious arts. So, so uh, this is why we're going to see, Paul's going to talk about Satan as the prince of the power of the air. These people were into voodoo. These people were into witchcraft. And they understood this, this, this spirit realm. You know, today, this modern man, 
you, you reach the, you know, today, the most sophisticated modern man, they have no regard for the spiritual world. These people understood it. They knew it was real. Uh, there's a term in the Bible called familiar spirits. They became familiar with these spirits. In, in fact, if you listen to some of the movements today and the leaders of these movements, they will, they're, they're now saying openly, they dabble with these spirits. They commune with these spirits. And, and unfortunately, some of our own brethren are getting caught up in this witchcraft. But this is real. And this, this, they're in the air. And these people are confessing that they were communing with this spiritual realm, this dark spiritual realm. And they, they had this knowledge in these books. Many of them also, which use Curious Odds, brought their books together. And they have had a complete change of heart. This is how powerful Paul's preaching was. And they burned these books. All of the knowledge of how to do this, how to invoke the spirits, how to, how to welcome them in, how to summon them so that they'll come and commune with you. All of this was in these books. These, these were highly prized books that if you had this, you were very careful to keep this secret so people wouldn't understand how you're able to do this. Well, this preaching was so powerful and they began to see the reality of Christ that they came in, they brought these books with all the secrets, the mysteries together and they burned them before all men. They, they're done. They want nothing to do with this. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a lot of money. These were, these were very valuable books to have this kind of knowledge. So with that as context, the key ideas in chapter one, the um, nature of the city that we learned from Acts, how they were very familiar with the demonic world and the demonic realm and how powerful it was and how they were enslaved to this world how they were using these um, spill, spells and curses and witchcraft on each other. And they understood the power of this demonic world. Now we come to chapter two. And you, has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins? So you'll see here uh, in the English that has he quickened is italicized. And the reason it's italicized is it's not in the text. At least it's not here. It is a correct translation. This is absolutely 100% correct. It's just in the wrong place. This verb, it's a long sentence. It doesn't actually come until verse five. But what the authors are doing here, or the, sorry, the translators are doing here, is they're bringing it forward into verse one so that we as English readers, where we don't understand how um, in Greek, you, in, in English, it's a very clear structure. You have the subject, you have the verb, and then you have the object. That's how we speak in English. In Greek, you don't need to speak like that. In Greek, the, the, the sentence structure can be any way. The verb doesn't have to be uh, after the subject and before the object. Uh, the verb can be at the end of the sentence. So the Greeks would play with word order depending on what they wanted to emphasize. And so the verb here that he has brought us to life it actually doesn't belong here, but it does help us to understand what he's saying. But there's a, a cost, there's a price to pay for clarity, um, and that is tension. We lose the tension. So, so Paul wants to first lay out this, the state of darkness that they have come from without any relief. And then he'll provide the relief. 
Whereas here we read this and immediately we're given, we don't even get started. He, you know, he hasn't even begun to say what he's going to say. And already the translators have given us the relief. So it, does, so it doesn't impact us as much as it would in the original language. But this is correct. He has brought us to life. And this is a concept from chapter one that he's bringing forward. And that'll become clear as we continue to read. So these Gentiles, these Gentile Christians have been brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, yes, they were. They were deep into this witchcraft. And they, they really believed in the voodoo. And they were and, and all of the uh, debauchery that goes with it. Oh, yeah, they were dead in trespasses and sins. We're in time past, we're in in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. So, so there's a course that this world has. And Christians, I'm appealing to us all, we should not be in, in league and in communion and in accordance with the course of this world. When the whole world is going a certain direction and we find ourselves agreeing and going in that direction as well, red flag, red flag. So, so this is what was happening here, that there was a course or there is a course of this world. And the, the, these Christians from Ephesus, they were, on, on, they were in accordance with it. Not only that, they were also in accordance, according to the prince of the power of the air. That word prince meaning the chief. So there is power in the air. And these Ephesian Christians uh, were very familiar with it because many of them understood the science of how to invoke these spirits, how to call these spirits, the certain kind of music that you play, the certain uh, trance-like state that you put people in, in order to bring the spirits to inhabit them. This is the world that they lived in. But there's a chief over all of this. There's, there's a hierarchical structure. And some of these spirits are extremely powerful, but there's one that is the most powerful over all of them in this demonic realm. And this, they were walking, they were under his instructions and they were enslaved to this, this being. The spirit that right now actively works in the children of disobedience. This is true today as much as it was back at the time of Paul writing this that Satan is active. This is his world. He is the, the, the chief ruler over this earth until Christ comes to, to knock him off his throne. But right now he remains on this throne until Christ is inaugurated as king, the rightful king over the earth. And so this spirit is actively working at the time of Paul writing this. He's saying, you know your neighbors, you know your friend, you know what you've turned from. Well, you look at them right now. And this spirit is actively working in them. And we can say the same thing today. As we look at the state of affairs, how our world is changing. This is, this is now, Satan knows he has a short time. He's intensifying this control and this activity and this hysteria and this violence and this debauchery. It's actively working. And we better be careful not to get seduced and caught up in this. Among whom also we all had our conduct in times past. And so this is really interesting now. So you, uh, brethren in Ephesus, you were in the dark arts. Satan had you hook, line, and sinker. He had complete, you were under remote control. He had complete control over you. And then Paul says, you know what? Among whom these children of disobedience, 
we all had our conduct and we not recently uh, finished studying the book of Judges. And oh yes, the children of Israel and the children of Judah, very much so, were deeply involved with this Satanism and this awful, awful debauchery and this worshiping of idols. They very much were involved. So Paul is saying, hey, it's not just you, all of us had our conduct in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfill, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And again, as Christians, we cannot be like this. You see, we see it today. Christians who are ego driven, Christians who must be front and center, Christians who must, you, you must know how wonderful and powerful and, and uh, how much authority they have. This is a lust of the mind. And then the sexual debauchery, lust of the flesh. These things, as we are overtaken by the Holy Spirit, these things mean nothing to us. At least they should. But human nature being what it is, Satan is constantly trying to get back, uh, to resurrect the old man, to, to get back the control over us. But this is what we were doing. The flesh has desires and the mind has desires. We want to be respected. We want our ego to be acknowledged. These are desires of the mind. And because of all of this, all of us were, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. That's an interesting uh, turn of phrase, the children of wrath. Because Jesus Christ, and, and you know, we think of Jesus Christ, we think we know Jesus Christ. We don't know Jesus Christ unless we know that his wrath is as great as his mercy. If the if only thing we want to talk about Christ is his mercy, then we don't know Christ. If the only thing we want to talk about Christ is his wrath, then we don't know Christ. The true Christ, we understand how deep and how wide his love is. But we also know how intense his wrath is. And we know that what's coming, when he returns, when he appears, we know that he's appearing in wrath. And he's coming to shed blood. Even before he comes, he's releasing, he's opening the seals and authorizing the shedding of much blood. Most of humanity will be destroyed before he even returns as he unseals the wrath of God, the judgments of God. And then when he himself comes, he's coming to shed, his, his clothing is gonna be covered in, in bloodstains. This is the Christ that we know. And this is the Christ we proclaim. And those who are under Satan's influence, they become by nature, the children of this wrath. They will inherit this wrath. And yet we who are in Christ, when he appears, we have been looking for his appearing. We are rejoicing at his appearing. And because of our preaching of the gospel, the Jews who pierced him will rejoice at his appearing, acknowledging him as their Messiah. But there is great wrath coming. And, and we need to be, this needs to be very, very uh, much in our awareness because this is the next chapter, right? After the tribulation, when Christ appears, he's appearing in wrath. We need to know this and, 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 you know, the Passover, we want this wrath to pass over us uh, very much so. Now, look how Peter more or less says the same thing. He would just break into 2 Peter 1, 3. According as his divine power has given unto us all things. This is why we rejoice. Because of the blessings that his divine power has given to us. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
that has called us to glory and virtue. This is why Paul, in his uh, letter to the Ephesians, he opens up saying that he prays that the eyes of our enlightenment will be opened, that we will understand that all of this, these, these books that these men burned and these curious arts that they were deep into and the, the operation of Satan in their lives was removed by preaching. It was removed by teaching. That Paul was known to the demonic world because of his teaching. That he was removing the deception. And giving them the full knowledge of Christ. And this is how we receive all of these blessings through the knowledge. And we're going to come to Ephesians 4 uh, shortly. And, and Pastor Murray touched on this when he did the ordination service for our brother Jim. That the, the God gives gifts. And these men give knowledge. And this knowledge removes deception and avoids us from being tossed to and fro. And this is how we resist the satanic demonic realm. So it is through this knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby through this are given unto us this knowledge, exceeding great and precious promises that by these, by this knowledge, by this understanding, by this enlightenment, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So these men had deep knowledge of what this operation is that we've been called into. And Paul's earnest prayer was that the eyes of the enlightenment of the Ephesian Christians would be opened so that Christ would say to them, let him who has an ear hear, demonstrating that this curse that was on ancient Judah until the abomination of desolation, that they're going to be deaf and blind and arrogant until the cities of Judah and Jerusalem in particular are made desolate. But those in Christ, this curse is lifted from us. We are first fruits Israel and we have our eyes of enlightenment. We have understanding. And so this is the battle to get this right understanding in our minds and to wage war with this understanding. Back to Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Okay, we're bringing forward the concept that he laid down in chapter 1. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Again, where this is Torah. We understand who, whom God has chosen and whom he loves and whom we've grafted into. Even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together. So this is now the verb. So all of this should have been the suspense building. That it seems like these people are lost and with no hope until God has made us alive together with Christ. So by grace, you are saved. Again, remember, ancient Israel should rejoice during the Feast of Tabernacles because of the, the, the works of their hands being blessed. Here. It's the works of God's hands that are blessing us with all spiritual blessings. And the same way that Christ was dead for three days and three nights, and the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, we have access to this power. In the same way that Christ was dead, the apostle is saying by analogy, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were completely overtaken by darkness, completely no spiritual life in you at all. And you were heading for wrath. 
And from that state, you have been resurrected, so to speak. You've been brought to life with the same power that God used to bring Christ to life from the dead. Even when we were dead in sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. So both Jew and Gentile have been made alive together. And it's by grace, it's nothing that we've done and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heaven, in the heavenly in Christ Jesus. So again, he's bringing forward the concepts from chapter one into chapter two, but this is amazing that you Gentiles who were completely without God, completely dead, no spiritual life in you at all. You know what? We Jews, we were in the same state. We were in a complete state of rebellion, but God who's rich in mercy, he came to earth, fulfilled the covenant promises and, and requirements and to inherit the promises on our behalf. And in him, we have been brought back to life and we've been reconciled back with God. But not only has he done this for us Jews, he's done it for you Gentiles as well. And together we've been brought to spiritual life and, and in sort of this resurrection, you know, to, to be brought into a standing position in this resurrection, we are now sitting down. So we've been, we've been made to stand up in order to sit down. So he's raised us up. He's resurrected us from death to, to seat us in the heavenly with Christ. And so in Ephesians one, in chapter one, we saw as God raised Christ from the dead that he didn't just raise him from the dead to put him on his feet. He raised him from the dead and then lifted him up far above all principalities and powers as he sat him by his right hand. And then he said, he's the head over all things in the church, which is his body. So we are the body of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ is now sitting in the heavenly and we are grafted into his body, we are also seated with him in the heavenly. And ultimately this will be fulfilled as we have our new bodies and we will sit on thrones. We will sit on thrones in this spiritual dimension. And here um, in Romans six, just again, he, he just to reinforce this analogy that he, or metaphor that he's making about this notion of being brought to life from the dead. In Romans six and verse four, he says to the Roman congregations, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, in the same way, we also should walk in newness of life. So this notion that he planted in Ephesians 1, he's now bringing it forward in Ephesians 2. That as Christ was resurrected from the dead and now sits in the heavenly, when we were baptized, we acknowledged the death of our old life. And when we came up out of the water, so to speak, we were resurrected into new life and, and grafted into the covenant people and into the body of Christ. So we now sit with him in the heavenly. And so we should walk in newness of life. Back to Ephesians 2 and verse 6. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly in Christ Jesus. So again, he's bringing forward the notion that he planted in chapter one, and here it is. And, and we are sitting with him in the heavenly because we are his body. We are connected to him. And so as he sits in the heavenly, we sit with him as his body. That in the ages to come, 
And that's what we're picturing now through this feast. There's going to be a new age. And then from the millennium on into eternity, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And this, this is why we rejoice that this, these blessings that have been bestowed upon us are not just the physical increase that we have. All of that could be taken away, but this cannot be taken away as long as we hold on to it, that in the ages to come, he's going to reveal how rich his grace of his kindness toward us has been through Christ Jesus. This is phenomenal. For by grace are you saved. Again, the ancient Israelites rejoiced because the work of their hands was being blessed. This, what we have inherited here, has nothing to do with the work of our hands. It's actually the work of God's hands. For by grace are you saved through faith. The same way that Abraham believed and he was blessed, it's the same way that as he preached to the Ephesians and they believed and they burned all their, their ugly books and that demonic witchcraft and they embraced Christ. And all of this was the grace of God. And it's the same grace that was extended to the Jews who deserve absolutely all the curses of the covenant. But by God's grace, the Holy One of Israel, that when they accepted him as Messiah, they have been saved. But here you could even go further with this saved, that uh, Israel and Judah have been constantly saved from their enemies. And now the Ephesians have been saved from Satan. So there is a kind of a present tense salvation in terms of being saved from our enemies, but ultimately this process of salvation is going to result in our full conversion into spirit life and into the family of God. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. This is not, you know, we're not being blessed by the work of our hands, not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. They can say, oh, look, I did this. Look how talented I am. I know nothing. This, this phenomenal blessing, we have done nothing to receive it. It's just God's graces, graciousness and the extension of his grace toward us. For we are his workmanship. It's not our works, it's his works. And, and that's what we represent, the, 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 the miraculous working of God in our minds to free us from Satan to do his work. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So yeah, works are very much a part of what we do. Works are very much a part of the Christian walk, but we don't achieve salvation through our works. We work because of our salvation. So we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So again, he's bringing forward this concept of predestination, that God's counsel, God's plan from the beginning of the world, from the foundation of the world, was that the lamb would be slain in order to redeem a people who would do the work of God on earth to bring the rest of mankind, well, the rest of Israel and ultimately the rest of mankind into this salvation. So this work or this path that we are on was preordained in the foreknowledge of God. And so this is not, again, get rid of Greek philosophy. This is not, I'm so special that God preordained and predestined that I would have salvation 
and therefore I can do whatever I want. I can kill, murder, and maim, and nobody can take this salvation away from me because I'm predestined. I'm just so great. That's not at all what the rabbi is teaching. But he is teaching that there is a plan of God, and it involves a, a, a set of people who would do a work that was designed before the foundation of the world. And so we've been grafted into this, that we should walk in this work. And here in John 15, Christ says to these disciples who have had their eyes enlightened and who are now doing the work of Christ on earth, that herein is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And so this is the work that we do that bears fruit and the fruit must remain. And this is the operation of God. This work has been foreordained and we've been called into it. Let's be about our father's business. Verse 11, wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So, uh, you know, in this culture, uh, the Greeks were very proud of themselves and they would do their sports and whatnot uh, in the nude. So it was quite obvious that they were uncircumcised and the Jews detested this just as much as the Greeks detested circumcision. But Paul is making it clear that you were, you were looked down upon. You were despised by the Jews because you're, you, you were just considered the uncircumcised. But at the same time, he doesn't hold up circumcision as some great thing. He says circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So the circumcision is no different than idols made by hands. So yeah, there's something about circumcision which is critical. It's part of the expression of the covenant. But Paul has gone on to realize that ultimately what Moses was writing about was the circumcision of the heart. And that these people are cursed because not only are they blind and deaf, but their heart is fat and uncircumcised. And so to have your foreskin circumcised, but your heart is uncircumcised, Paul says this is idolatry. So there's this contention now between the Gentiles and the Jews. And, and Paul is reminding them that you were completely separate. You were, you were despised by the Jews. That at that time, you were without Christ being alien aliens from the commonwealth of israel and again if we could have maybe brought uh, into chapter one this verse of chapter 12 when paul is talking about predestination you can clearly see that he hasn't abandoned the torah he hasn't abandoned his understanding of these of the elect of the chosen so when he's speaking about the chosen in chapter one he's not you know he hasn't come up with some new concept we clearly see the the, the, the continuity of thought here that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, this predestined group, and strangers from the covenants of promise with this predestined group. Having no hope, there's no other way. Unless you're in this covenant, there's no hope for you. You're children of wrath and without God in the world. And they certainly were ungodly. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who sometimes were far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ. So the Apostle Paul has this very thorough and complete understanding of the role of the Gentile world 
or the, well, the select few in the Gentile world being grafted into the covenant and, and the Jew and the Gentile now being one in Christ. This was, this is a very hard notion and very few understood this, but the apostle Paul has a 2020 dialed in fully. And now he's educating the, the Ephesians for he is our peace. So there's this um, contention between the circumcision and the uncircumcision. And now he's saying, you know what? As Christ has operated in the circumcision to bring us out from under wrath, he's done the same thing with the Gentile world, of whom, by the way, many of the lost tribes of Israel are embedded in this. But he's done the same thing, and he's brought you out from under wrath. And now we're, we're together, one in Christ, for he is our peace. And this is where, again, this is a notion that he's bringing forward from chapter 1 that it, ultimately all things will be gathered together in one under Christ. But already he's gathering together Jew and Gentile as one in Christ. And the same notion in chapter one, where he introduces that, you know, God wants to lavish his grace and peace upon us. Now he's expanding on this. He already expanded on the grace. Now he's expanding on the shalom, on the peace, that, that we were children of wrath like others. And now there's peace with God. For he, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one. So this again, he's, he's gathering together in one in Christ all things, beginning with Jew and Gentile. For he, uh, first fruits, Jew and Gentile. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. In other words, there was no coming together of these two groups, none. Not, not in a million years could, could the Jews imagine that they would have anything to do with the, the uncircumcised. And yet, Paul is saying it's done. There's now peace between the uncircumcision and circumcision. And this wall of partition has been broken down. A wall, by the way, that the Apostle Paul would be very familiar with. If we look here in Acts 21 and verse 28, uh, these men are crying out, men of Israel, like this is, this is urgent. They are crying out in, in great pleas of urgency. Men of Israel, help, help us. SOS, help. This is the man, pointing to Paul, that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and the place and further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. So there was a clear wall. That in the holy place, in, in the inner part of the holy place, you did not bring Gentiles. And they're accusing him that Paul crossed this line. Paul took the Gentiles past this wall of partition and into the holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So, so this was very understood to the uh, people of Ephesus. We don't cross this wall. And yet they accuse Paul of doing this. And so Paul is saying, uh, and whether or not that was actually true, they just assumed it was him who did it. But regardless, uh, Paul is saying that wall of partition, it has been broken down. Having abolished in his flesh, the enmity. So Paul is fully, fully understanding the depth of the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. Having abolished in his flesh, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances 
for to make in himself of two one new man so making peace and of course the traditional christians are going to jump all over this and say see the torah is thrown away no need for the torah but the apostle paul would never teach that that you know now that you've been brought out of darkness um and you're in christ it's okay to commit adultery it's okay to lie it's okay to steal it's okay to covet you know it's okay to bear false witness and it's okay to to continue in your idolatry because the ten commandments are thrown away obviously he's not saying that but all of these laws and ordinances and, and sacrifices that they had before the sacrifice of christ and they were so strict with all of this all of that has now been neutralized by the precious blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now the Gentiles having accepted Christ and the Jews, first fruits Israel, being, being one now, first fruits Israel, understanding the power of this sacrifice, now of the two, Jew and Gentile, there's one new man and so making peace. And so this again, he opened up this concept in Ephesians 1 that grace and peace be extended. And now this is what he means. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Again, bringing forward this concept that he's gathering together in one, all things under Christ. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were near. And this is an allusion to Isaiah, and again, we can go through, we've gone through Isaiah in the archive, but how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, and brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, your God reigns. So this, this publishing of peace all over, near and far, this is what he's alluding to. Verse 18, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, because of all of this, you are no more strangers and foreigners. So again, this goes back to this concept of predestination, that it's not some new Greek philosophy. He's understanding and he wants them to understand very clearly they have been grafted into the commonwealth. They are now full participants in the covenant. So he says, now, therefore, so this is the, you know, he, he opened up with the state of affairs previously. You were in complete darkness. And he offered no relief until we get to verse five to say, okay, but out of all of that darkness, you, you know, you were in the course of the world. You, you, you had the demonic realm and particularly the, the chief demon reigning over you. You had your horrible human nature. You were totally trapped in this death. But through Christ, You've been brought to life out of that. And not only you, but the Jews as well. And he's made us one. And that was, so that was the state of affairs previously. Here's the state of affairs now. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. And all of us who are not natural born Jews, any of us, doesn't matter what stock we are, even if we're natural Israelites, we're all considered Gentiles if we were not Jews, naturally. And it doesn't matter anymore. We've all been grafted in. And now therefore, and this is why we can rejoice, we've been not just grafted into this ethnic group, we've been grafted into the covenant. We've been grafted into the pre exceedingly great and precious promises that we are picturing here 
through the seven days and the eighth day of, of feasting. We are, we are symbolizing what this is all about and then what goes on beyond this. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of citizenship, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation. We've got the Torah, Moses being the first prophet, and then all of the other prophets that come after him, and now the apostles sent by Christ. <clears throat> they laid the foundation, and we are built upon this foundation and the knowledge that they have taught. And this is what dispels the deception of the demonic world. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And this is what we need the Jews to understand that everything, all of this body of knowledge that has been given to the Jewish people, all of it rests upon the true foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And until you have the chief cornerstone, you don't have anything. But once you have the chief cornerstone, everything now makes sense. And we who are part grafted into this, we can now make sense of the world that we live in while everyone else is just running around in darkness and confusion, uh, according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom, in Christ, all the building fitly framed together. He's bringing the concept forward from chapter one, that God is gathering together all things in one under Christ, beginning with Jew and Gentile. And so this building that he's making, this body of Christ, now he's using the metaphor of a building, but we're attached to Christ, Christ being the uh, chief cornerstone in a, in a uh, construction analogy, but being the head in a body analogy. In either way, he's the heart of the operation. And he's the, he's the central glue that pulls it all together, in whom all the building fitly framed together. And this is what we need to understand that God places us in his body as it pleases him. Whatever congregation we're in, he's placed us there as it has pleased him in order to work out how to work together. And, you know, we're celebrating the feast here in Ottawa, and it's just beautiful to see the peace, to see the harmony, to see the unity that's here. There's just a relaxed unity. That un There's an understanding that God has placed us in this part of the body. And he's fitly framed us together. And each person has different gifts and abilities. But each one has that for the edification of the whole. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. And then these different congregations ultimately will be brought together perfectly fashioned to fit totally together. And this is what we have to be working out together, as he said to the uh, uh, congregation in, in Philippi, to work out your salvation together. Work it out so that we can be fitly framed together and grow unto a holy temple in the Lord, whom you also, you Gentiles are now part of this, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the spirit. This is amazing that the holy God of Israel would dwell in Gentiles. Well, no, that's not quite true because they're not Gentiles anymore. They have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel and God will never dwell in a Gentile temple. God will be the God of Israel and he'll be glorified in Israel forever. And so this is this, is this great understanding that we can have together as we celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles 
and, and what a wonderful, wonderful knowledge that we've been brought into. Let's, let's rejoice, brethren. <laughs> let's rejoice. Let's get deep into the word and just understand the riches of his grace and the exceeding power that he extends toward us over every power and principality. And let's have this spirit of unity and joy together. God bless you, brethren. Hopefully, God willing, you'll join us tomorrow.